0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash northadelaide. The first reading is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And the second reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven.
1: Thanks very much, Izzy. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm Simon. Uh, people call me Jacko around here. I'm lead pastor of City Light Church in North Adelaide. Uh, We're a church here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, which is elder-led. And so I and Sam, just sitting down here, we co-elder, co-lead our church. Um, And so um, I'm an elder, Sam's an elder. That's how we kind of run the place around here. Um, Welcome to church. I hope uh, you've been encouraged so far. Uh, We are in a series looking at uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, It was about, it's about 2,000 words long, uh, and we've sort of only just sort of scratching the surface as we work our way into the sermon. Over the last three weeks, we're up to week four, over the last three weeks, uh, we've just seen how the Sermon on the Mount is just loaded full of wisdom, uh, wisdom that comes from our maker. And it makes sense that as creatures made by God, um, the blessed life comes when we follow our maker's instructions. But we realize as well through the Sermon on the Mount that the only way uh, to enter God's kingdom is through acknowledging our, as we've been reminded this morning, through our bankruptcy. We are bankrupt before God in desperate need of his help. So we come to this most extraordinary ethical teaching um, first and foremost by admitting our ethical poverty. And it's from there we then can engage with what is known as the blessed life. And last week we thought a bit more about what that blessed life looks like. It looks like meekness, gentleness, being peacemakers, uh, being humble, selfless. And also it looks like being a light to the world, salt in a world that we live in as well. This week, we're coming to um, uh, the next section, which we just had read out. And before we get into that, I want you to turn to the neighbor, your neighbor around you, and here's today's little thing to talk about. Um, When was the last time you threw out something old and replaced it with something new? Yeah? Like something that was old and you went, I've got to replace that. I need something similar, but I need a new version of that. Yeah? Does it make sense? I'm thinking like, I live in the land of iPhones. You know, my perfectly good iPhone is, well, no longer the current model, so I need a new one. Yeah? Um, that's what I would do. Turn to the person next to you. When was the last time you got rid of something old, replace it with something new? I'll give you a couple of minutes. have a chat to the neighbor. Go for it. Uh, anyone willing to share what they, the old thing they got rid of and the new thing? Anyone want to share it? Yeah, Nick. An old charging cable with a new one—probably very helpful move. Yeah. What was that? Riveting. Riveting yes. Yeah. Yeah. World-changing. Yeah. Anything else? Ironing board cover. That's even more exciting, I reckon, than a. Well, depending what cranks your handle, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Ironing board cover. Whew. Anything else? No, no, we have probably dragged the bottom of the file, there we go. Well, if you have something more exciting than those things, talk to me later, that'll be good. Um, Before we get into the words uh, this morning, um, and uh, that'll make sense hopefully in a minute, Um, just uh, just relation to the Acts 29 conference, which is happening this coming Saturday. Uh, So March the 5th, 2022, uh, day conference, where we're kind of connecting with other cities around Australia and also internationally. Uh, for what normally is a conference in one location but because of the coronavirus it's sort of scattered across multiple locations. It's happening Saturday uh, coming up and uh, basically it's a, a conference which is volunteer organized and led and we're just looking for a couple of extra volunteers So if you're able to come and serve, that would be great. So we're looking for a couple of extra people just to stand on the front door and welcome people as they come. So if that's something you feel like you could do uh, just at the beginning of the day, that would be great. Uh, And also, yeah, as Izzy mentioned, we're having an all-day kids program. Uh, They'll be well looked after throughout the day, lots of great activities. Uh, We're just looking for an extra couple of leaders maybe just to help out. Uh, you don't have to be particularly skilled in kids' min, uh, but if you are able to come and willing to serve in that way, that would be excellent too. Um, so welcoming on the front door, let me know after the service, or if you can do kids' min, that will be excellent as well. I do have open in front of you Matthew 5 and those verses that Izzy read out, verse 17 through to 20. Um, let me pray. Father, thank you. Uh, we thank you so much for your word Uh, We thank you for uh, the freedom we have to gather in this way this morning, in this place, Uh, Lord. And we pray that now, as we do look at your word, uh, with the help and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that we would see Jesus, we pray that we would hear Jesus, and we pray that we would love Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've probably heard the phrase, out with the old, and in with the new, yeah? Out with the old and in with the new. And I've got a prop today. i um, pretty sure that's what my old mate, who I went to school with, Peter Malinowskis, is hoping will happen in the upcoming state election. Um, he's hoping that. Out with Stephen Marshall, this is not a political church, by the way, right? Um, but so he's hoping out with Stephen Marshall and the Liberal government and in with me, or him, and the Labour Party. <laughs> Stella saw me turn up to church just before with this and she goes, Dad, isn't it illegal to take those down? And I said, I'm above the law. No, no. I said, I said, by the Lord's grace, this was on the back, like the street next to us on the ground as I walked around the streets last night. So, <laughs> guess or not. Maybe I'll go and put it up after church again. Anyway, out with the old, I'll put him down, out with the old, in with the new. Um, actually, you know, out with the old and in with the new is pretty much what a lot of people thought Jesus came to do way back a couple of thousand years ago. In particular, the thought is, you know, with Jesus, you know, no more Old Testament rules and regulations. Instead, you know, a new way to live as God's people as described in the New Testament. Is that right? You know, out with the old, in with the new. It's not a new issue, by the way. It goes right back to Jesus' day. The question of the relationship to the Old Testament was already a pressing issue at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, We don't know exactly how long after Jesus' baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness. But it does seem pretty soon after those things, Jesus began to heal people on the Sabbath. That Jesus began to have dinner and lunch and brunch and breakfast with the kind of riff-raff of society both were infringements right of the law according to the traditions of the elders you know they said you know to heal on the sabbath is breaking the sabbath commandments or you know it's infringing the laws of communal and ceremonial purity when you mix with the also rounds or the riff raff of society so the contemporaries of jesus right they were shocked even scandalized by jesus behavior because it seemed to them to be breaking the law They began to dismiss Jesus, right, as what we might call a theological liberal, you know, disrespectful of the word of God. Besides Jesus, right, he taught with great authority. So the questions arose, was Jesus claiming to possess an authority that was higher and greater than that of Moses or the prophets? What was the relationship of Jesus to the Old Testament? And what should our relationship as Christians be to the Old Testament? These questions, right, live on today. Um, all of us, I'm pretty sure, or most of us at least, will know that our Bibles, the Bibles that are in the pews around us today, or that you brought with you today, is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part is a, a longer kind of uh, section, which is called the Old Testament, and the shorter bit out the back is called the New Testament. What's the relationship between the Old and the New? There are some Christians, right, who dismiss even reject the old testament altogether in spite of the fact right that i don't know if you heard jesus say in the reading we had from matthew 5 today that he said i did not come to abolish the law and the prophets but there are christians today right who just like reject the whole of the old testament they're a bit like the second century heretic named marcion who according to another early church father tertullian criticized the scriptures with a pen knife Right, So Marcion just got his Bible and cut out all the bits and pieces he didn't like very much. So he got his penknife and chopped out the whole of the Old Testament. And then he got to the New Testament and he chopped out every quotation from the Old Testament that appeared in the New Testament. I'm thinking you wouldn't have much left, right? And there are modern day Marcionites. There are others who go to the other extreme, right, who just live in the Old Testament. The promises they claim are only the promises found in the Old Testament. They study the prophecies of the Old Testament, but they never arrive at the new. So what is the relationship of the new to the old? And what should our attitude to the Old Testament be today? That's what we really come to today. That's what we're going to think about um, as we turn to Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen. To 20. I'm going to read it again. Follow along with me. Uh, Matthew 5:17 to 20, and see if you can spot two sections. The two sections we're going to look at: Jesus and the Old Testament, and Christians and the Old Testament. So, verse 17, uh, Jesus says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them." You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We're first going to look at Jesus and his relationship to the Old Testament. That's verses 17 uh, to 18. I'm sure you all have noticed as I read, right, um, that Jesus draws a clear, concise, and contrast in order to indicate what his attitude to the Old Testament was. He says, Do not think, yeah? Do not think. Evidently, some people around him had already begun to think that because of his behaviour, healing on the Sabbath, hanging out with the riffraff of society, some had begun to think that he was dismissive of the whole of the Old Testament. But he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. By the way, law and the prophets, when you read it like that, it's simply shorthand for referring to the Old Testament. The law and the prophets means the whole of the Old Testament. So don't think I've come to abolish, says Jesus. No, I've actually come to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not a little stroke or a letter will not be fulfilled. Um, In some of the older translations of the Bible, you have things like, um, i tell you the truth until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, I-O-T-A, iota, which is like the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the language that the Old Testament's written in. Uh, Not a dot also, not a stroke. Probably refers to like a little stroke or a projection or a little accent that is on one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But Jesus says, like, not the smallest letter, Not the smallest stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until it's all been accomplished. There's no doubt in my mind that the two key words in these verses are the words fulfill and accomplished. The different words in the Greek, right, but they basically effectively have the same meaning. Jesus has not come, he said, to abrogate the law. He'd not come to destroy it. He'd come to bring it to its God intended fulfillment, its intended completion and culmination. So the fundamental relationship between the new and the old is found in that key word, fulfillment. And exactly what Jesus meant by that is made clear by the context. You all know, as avid Bible readers and studyers, it's always important to study the text of Scripture that you're in, in its context, immediate context and its surrounding context. The immediate context here is the Sermon on the Mount. The whole context is like the, all of the 28 chapters of Matthew's Gospel and even beyond. See, Matthew is a, he's a theologian. He wants to tell us something, so this section might seem a little bit obscure, but the other parts of Scripture kind of shed light on it to help us understand what Matthew's doing. So when it comes to Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament, I want to suggest there are two meanings to this idea of fulfillment. Firstly, it's this. Jesus fulfilled the prophetic teaching, the promises of the Old Testament, by embodying it in his own person. Let me say that again, right? Jesus fulfilled the prophetic teaching, the promises of the, of the Old Testament, by embodying it in his own person. Jesus was himself the fulfillment of all the hopes and expectations we find in the Old Testament. Now, anybody who reads Matthew's gospel, right, will know this is kind of Matthew's main point of writing his gospel. Throughout the 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's a Jew He's interested to show the reader, that's you and me, how Jesus fulfills what was written about him and promised about him in the Old Testament from the book of Genesis all the way through to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. So that's why, if you know Matthew's gospel, that's why Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew chapter one, the genealogy of Jesus, strangely, is in my top five Bible passages of all time. I absolutely love it. I love it because in that genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writes down for us and shows us how Jesus was the successor and the fulfillment of what was written to Abraham and to David and to all the other kind of Old Testament greats and giants. Matthew sets Jesus in that family tree to show us that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, Saviour of the world, the one, the seed born of Abraham, who would come into the world and be the locust, the situation and blessing of all the world. And that's why after chapter 1, he goes on to portray Jesus as the preacher of the kingdom, And the one who comes to heal, to give us a glimpse of what the kingdom is going to be. I haven't got time to go into this in detail, which is always dangerous when I say that because I usually go off on tangents. But in Matthew chapter 4, just before you get to the Sermon on the Mount, there's this comment that Matthew goes. It says that Jesus was doing ministry all around a particular part of Galilee. And in that particular part of Galilee, Jesus healed every disease and sickness illness yeah and you sit in there and go yes that's what he does it's extraordinary there was a place in our world in our planet a little area a region where Jesus was and he healed every disease that means all the doctors were out of business the physiotherapists had to go and find something else to do. The pharmacies, I don't know, they just went on selling perfume and other trinkets because there were no drugs needed, yeah? It's extraordinary. He's born in this line, the long promised Savior. He then turns up and shows us what the kingdom's going to be and how we long for that kingdom to come in light of events that we're experiencing right now, where there's distress and displacement because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Bring on the kingdom to come. And then, all the way through Matthew's gospel. We keep coming across his favorite formula. This took place in order that it be fulfilled, that was written by the Lord through the prophet. And then we get the Old Testament quotation. It's Matthew's big idea. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. A bit later, I mean, listen to this, brothers and sisters. A bit later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records one of the most, I don't know, extraordinary sayings of Jesus. Uh, let me read it, when he was surrounded by his disciples, Jesus said to them, blessed are your eyes because they see, and blessed are your ears because they hear, and he goes on, there were many prophets and wise men in the Old Testament who longed to see what you see and did not see it, and they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. In other words, the Old Testament characters were living in the days of expectation, and Jesus says you're living in the days of fulfillment. Jesus claimed that the eyes of the disciples were seeing and the ears of the disciples were hearing the fulfilment of the very things that had been promised by God in the Old Testament. It's laid out in Matthew's Gospel. It's expanded and weaved all the way through the New Testament. Jesus is the the prophet, the priest, and the king. John Calvin, the, the great reformer, Uh, was the first to see this threefold office of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. There were prophets in the Old Testament. There were priests in the Old Testament. There were kings throughout the Old Testament. But each of those offices is fulfilled in the one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 through whom God would finally and fully and definitively reveal himself. Jesus is the priest by whom his one sacrifice, once for all time and for the sins of the world, as he died on the cross, has fulfilled all priestly activity and sacrifices. No more sacrifices are needed. And Jesus is the king whose perfect kingdom of righteousness and peace has fulfilled all those imperfect foreshadowings of the kings of Israel and Judah of history. The scriptures, Jesus said, bear witness to me. And the scriptures he was talking about were the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus fulfilled the prophetic teaching and the promises of the Old Testament by embodying it. He was the Messiah to whom the law and the prophets look forward. But secondly, Jesus also fulfilled the the moral teaching of the Old Testament by drawing out its radical implications. Or if you like, Jesus fulfilled the moral teaching of the Old Testament by by deepening it, by pointing out the depths of it that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at the time never noticed. And all this is clear, right, in the immediate context in which uh, the verses to come uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to show six examples, which we'll get to over the coming weeks, um, each of which begins with the phrase, you've heard that it was said by the people, but I say to you something different, yeah? Now, I don't want to steal the thunder of Phil Brown or David Purton from Focus, who are coming to preach the next couple of weeks, by anticipating what they're going to say, but it might be helpful just to simply point out that this, Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. When he refers to the Old Testament, right, he He refers to it not as what was said, but as what was written. When Jesus says, when you've heard heard that it was said, he's not talking about the written scripture. He's talking about the oral tradition, the scribal misinterpretation of the Old Testament. It was those that Jesus disagreed with and not the teaching of Moses itself written down. And so in the place of the teachings of the elders, the distorted teaching and scribal teachings, Jesus drew out the true, the richer, the more radical, the totally revolutionary implications of the teaching of the law. Here is Jesus' own attitude to the law. He didn't abolish it. He treated it with the utmost respect. He knew that the words of the Old Testament were... Words of preparation for his ultimate coming that he would fulfill in his person and work. None of it would pass until it found its fulfillment in him. So Martin Luther, another one of my favorite old dead guys, Martin Luther, said in the 16th century that although we read the Bible forwards, right, from Old Testament to New Testament, we can only understand it backwards, From New Testament to old. We read the old in the light of the new and its fulfillment in the person and work and teaching and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's the first part Jesus in the Old Testament verses 17 to 18. Let's pivot and think about us Christians those who follow the Lord Jesus Christians and the Old Testament uh, verse uh, 19 and 20. It's here that Jesus relates the law of God to the kingdom of God. Um, both of these verses relate to, refer to the kingdom. Uh, here Jesus relates the Old Testament to the New Age and it's fascinating what Jesus does. Jesus defines greatness in the kingdom, verse 19, in relation to our teaching of and obedience to God's commandments. And then declares, verse 20, that entry into God's kingdom is not possible unless your righteousness Our righteous obedience to the law exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he speaks of greatness in the kingdom and entry into the kingdom. And both have to do with the law, the moral law. Now let's look at greatness in the kingdom. Verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Note the connection that Jesus explains between the law and the kingdom, between submission to the law and greatness in the kingdom. He says that the quality of Christian discipleship will be judged based on our respect for the Old Testament law, of course, but in light of verse 17 and 18 more, our respect... For Christ, to whom the whole Old Testament points and is fulfilled, and then verse twenty, entry into the kingdom. Right now, when Jesus says, "You'll not even get into the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or the teachers of the law and the Pharisees," the disciples at that point, when Jesus said, "You know, you you can't get in unless you're exceedingly amazing," right? They, the disciples, and all those listening must have been like, "I don't know. I would have been shattered." Yeah a little bit dumbfounded why because the teachers of the law and the pharisees were the most righteous dudes in the world yeah they were the experts in the law and most people regarded them as beyond attainment in terms of righteous like a standard i said this to someone during the week actually i'll name him paul um i said this to paul during the week we're having coffee down at marati um, by the way, Arata is about to start at Marathi Cakes and Gatto. Go and visit him and get some beautiful projects. Anyway, um, that's you know, that's irrelevant. Anyway, I was at Marathi sitting there and I said to Paul, you know, when I was when I was a young Christian, I was at Sydney University and I was part of the, the, the campus, you know, kind of Christian group. And we were sitting there, a bunch of us from physiotherapy, you know, year three or something like level three. And we're studying the Bible together. We're doing part of the gospel where, you know, Jesus has a a less than excellent engagement with a Pharisee. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of, you know, like adults, university students know the world, you know, man, we're cool. And uh, my Bible study leader pulls out all these costumes, right? I'm thinking we're on campus, dude. I'm not getting dressed up in costumes. Ellen, when you're on campus, don't do this. Christine's next door. Anyway, so this big black cape comes out. And my Bible study study leader Lisa goes, Who wants to be the Pharisee? And of course I wanted to be the Pharisee, yeah? I'll be the Pharisee. And so I had to put on this big black cape and she said, and you've got to speak with a very kind of nasty, intriguing voice because the Pharisees were nasty and intriguing people. So here I am on campus, cool physiotherapy student, acting like a Pharisee with everyone watching. I'm like, what is going on? I say that because I I don't know about you, I kind of had this impression, right, that the Pharisees were the really nasty people, like terrible people. And yet, I learn actually through the way that they, they're actually not nasty and creepy people. In fact, they were some of the, like, I don't know, they're really nice people. Like, so someone once said to me, you know, if you lost your wallet, you know, full of $500, I've never had that experience before, but if you had, you know, you lost your wallet and it was full of cash and a Pharisee found it, like, they would, you know, do, they would bend over backwards to make sure you got your wallet back with everything in it. They were so concerned for external works. If I found your wallet with five hundred dollars in it, I'm out for dinner, right? No. Because I'm anyway, you know what I mean? I, they, these were, the Pharisees were seen as some of the most morally upright people in the planet. But they just missed the point. I've said this before, that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they'd calculated in the Old Testament 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, totaling 613 rules and regulations, and they claimed that they'd kept them all. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul, right, he said, as touching the righteousness of the law before he became a Christian, I was blameless. 613 rules and regulations, all of which he said, I obeyed to the letter. And now Jesus comes along and says, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never get into the kingdom. Has Jesus lost his mind? They must have said that to each other right on the hillside. He's got to be joking. How can the kingdom be closed to us if we've got to be more righteous than the most righteous brothers on earth? It's absurd. It's impossible. Well, I hope you know the explanation christian righteousness is far greater than pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper it's a righteousness of the heart blessed are the pure in heart jesus says for they will see the lord and so the righteousness of the kingdom is concerned with what's in our hearts not just simply our external works and our words This is one of the things that Jesus goes on to illustrate, right? You can commit adultery in your heart. You can commit murder in your heart. In the kingdom of God, God is concerned with your heart, my heart, and inward righteousness. Then we come to understand why it's necessary before we enter the kingdom of God at all, because our heart righteousness is impossible without a new heart. A new heart is impossible without new birth. An entry into the kingdom is impossible unless we're born again. That's the logic of what Jesus has to say about righteousness. It's why the very opening line of his Sermon on the Mount, the most profound ethical discourse in all of human history, starts with a call for you and me to admit our ethical poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need a new heart. And without a new heart, without being born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is the application of all of this for us? I want us to think a little bit more about the Christian attitude to the Old Testament. I think most of us here at City Light Church in North Adelaide, at least most of the people I've talked to that I know, I don't think you have much difficulty seeing the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. And I don't think most of us have a whole bunch of difficulty seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies uh, that the Old Testament contains. Our problem is not with that part of the Old Testament, I think it's with the moral law how are Christians how are you and I to relate to the moral the ethical law and if I have any understanding of the situation in the Christian church today and in our church today our tendency right as usual is to veer one to one or two extremes yeah opposed to kind of maintaining a biblical kind of balance and the two extremes are what you know, big words theologians call antinomianism, like anti law, or legalism, keeping rules. First extreme is like antinomian, right? These are people who reject the moral law. They would declare that, that the category of law is abolished in Christian discipleship and that believers are under no obligation to keep any ethical or moral law. There are plenty of antinomians in the church today. And their favourite texts are Romans 6.14, You are not under the law. Uh, Romans 10.4 as well, Christ is the end of the law. And in light of these verses, right, uh, some Christians hold that Christ has freed us from any obligation to keep the moral law. And there are no moral absolutes any longer. But of course, that is to kind of take those texts kind of out of their context, they say, for example, we are not under the law without going to add, but we are under grace in order to understand what Paul meant by it. And they go on to say that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. In other words, what Paul is saying in these texts, brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is that the law is not the way to salvation. We are not under the law for our justification in order to to be right with God. We're not under the law for our acceptance before God. Our acceptance before God doesn't depend on our obedience to the law. Otherwise, we would be stuffed. The law condemns us. It doesn't justify us. We're not under the law for our justification, for our right standing with God. But we are under the law for sanctification, that process by which we come, become more like Jesus. Once again, the 16th century reformers kind of got it right and understood it when they said the law which condemns us drives us to Christ to be justified. But when Christ has justified us through faith, he sends us back to God's ethical law in order to be sanctified. We're required to obey the moral law according to the New Testament. That's why we had Jeremiah read out just a bit earlier. Have you ever thought about how the prophets of old describe what the Messianic age would be like, you know, when Jesus came, what it would look like for God's people to live? It's fascinating. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, God says, in the Messianic age, he says, I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit in my people, and in Jeremiah thirty-three, thirty-three, we had it read. God says, "I will put my law on your hearts." And I don't know if you know this, right? But there's actually no difference between those two, because when God puts His spirit within us, what His spirit does is write His law in us, on our hearts. He writes His law on our hearts, that we know it and we love it and we want to obey it. It's the function of the indwelling spirit to help us know and to love and obey the word of God. God put his law and his spirit. It's the two ways of saying the same thing. God puts his law in our hearts that we would love it and know it and obey it and want to live it out. And so last week when we thought together about you know, what it looks like to, to be Christians, to be you know, beatitude Christians, to be men and women who thirst and hunger for righteousness, who are meek, who are gentle, who don't meet power with power, people who are peacemakers, people who look out on the world and mourn their own sin and mourn the sin of the rest of the world. That's the righteous life that God wants us to live. And as God's spirit dwells in us, his spirit makes us long to live like that more and more so that people, Matthew chapter 5, would see our good deeds and worship and glorify God. God's spirit is not in us to help us to throw out the law but actually it's in there to help us to love and know and live out the law of God for the good of the world for our joy and for the glory of God so much for the antinomians but we can go the other extreme yeah Where we, become, we become legalists you know, a legalist right is someone who's grasped that we're under the obligation to to live out God's law. But like the scribes, like the teachers of law and the Pharisees, they compile lists of do's and don'ts that they can find in the Bible and compile all the rules and the regulations, interpreting discipleship as some kind of conformity to external codes. What they're doing right, without realising it perhaps, is they're trying to make God's law more manageable, a little less challenging, within easier reach by reducing it just to a list of do's and don'ts. But the problem with the legalist is that they forget that God is concerned about the heart. Jesus emphasized that the radical demands of the law and how it reaches down into the very depths of our being, in other words, our hearts. And only there can the Holy Spirit work within us a righteousness of the heart not a perfect or sinlessness in this age we won't be perfect and sinless until the lord jesus returns and we're transformed fully into the image of christ but in the meantime the holy spirit is at work within us writing his law on our hearts and giving us grace to obey it so brothers and sisters I want to strongly exhort us this morning, let's avoid the two extremes, the extreme of antinomianism, no law, and reject it outright. I also want us to, on the other hand, reject legalism, that it's just about doing things and the heart doesn't actually matter. You know, antinomianism, the outright rejection of obedience, and on the other hand, a slavish submission to rules and regulations. I want to remind us this morning That being a follower of Jesus, by God's grace, through faith, is both a privilege and a responsibility. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. If we exaggerate the gift of God's free grace, we risk complacency. If we exaggerate the responsibility, we risk anxiety, legalism. But let's not do that. Let's work hard to hold the two together. It is an extraordinary privilege to be a man or a woman rescued by the free grace and magnificent mercy of Christ. But it also comes with the responsibility to represent him in the world, empowered by the Spirit, Let's remember, as verse 17 reminds us, that Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That the law and the kingdom are compatible, they go together. And ultimately, Jesus calls us to a righteousness that is greater than that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. It's a righteousness of the heart. And he calls us to live a life empowered by the spirit to live out the righteous life we've been called to live again for our joy for the good of those around us and for the glory of God thank God for his law and thank God for his spirit should we pray let's pray out with the old in with the new well, not quite Father, we thank you. We praise you for the scriptures, old and new. Thank you for the way that the scriptures point us to Jesus. Thank you that through Jesus, once for all time, sacrificial death for us, we can be members of his kingdom. Father, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit help us to listen to your commands to listen to your instructions and by the help of your spirit help us to live lives pleasing to you help us to be men and women keep us father from being antinomian rejecting your law entirely protect us from being legalists father please change our hearts change our hearts to live for Jesus more to love like Jesus more Father, help us to live lives pleasing to you for our good, for your glory and for the good of our world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church/northadelaide.